Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie. And this is our 100th episode. Can you believe that? And of course, that means that we've got a Q&A for today. And you guys really rose to the challenge. I've really enjoyed reading the questions you've sent in. And my thought is that to be fair, I'm just going to go through as many questions as I can. And hopefully I'm going to get to yours. So to start with, Peggy wants to know something about Scotland. Well, that's a pretty broad question, but let's run with it. Did you know that the last person to be imprisoned under Britain's Witchcraft Act was a Scot? Her name was Helen Duncan, and she claimed to be a medium. The problem was that she was holding seances where she was apparently letting people speak to the spirits of dead soldiers. And, well, that just wasn't good for morale in World War II. Yes, World War II. Helen Duncan was imprisoned under the Witchcraft Act in 1944. Way to keep up with the rest of the Western world, Britain. And it makes me wonder how my great-grandmother avoided the police, actually, considering the fact that she was a medium and would read tea leaves back in the pre- and post-war days. Anyway, the funny thing about this story is that Helen wasn't the last person to be convicted, just the last person to be imprisoned. The honor of the last conviction went to an English woman by the name of Jane York. But being that she was English and also 72 years old, they didn't bother imprisoning her and just basically made her promise to behave for three years. Now you might be tempted to say, hey, that seems pretty racist since a Scot went to jail but the English woman got a slap on the wrist. However, I ask you this. If you're a prison warden, do you really want a geriatric witch under your care? Especially one whose spirit guide, and I'm not making this up here, was allegedly a Zulu. I'm just saying, unless you're Michael Caine or a member of a Welsh army regiment, you might think twice about that. But chances are that Peggy wanted to know something educational about Scotland, and something that had to do with Scottish policy and culture rather than just a nutty British law and an ignominious imprisonment. So let's talk about university, or uni as you might call it. So Scotland started the first public educational system in Europe since the fall of Rome. And that's pretty awesome. And actually, given Scotland's close ties with France, something that was continually bothering the English, it went through an enlightenment of its own, and led to a burst in intellectual and educational thought. And as a consequence, there was a battery of Scottish thinkers that impressed the great minds of the time on the continent. Even Voltaire was blown away by what Scotland was doing. And these thinkers were changing the world. Their ideas greatly influenced many of the founders of the United States of America. And they weren't just changing the course of U.S. history and Scottish history. Hell, many of the terms and notions that we have regarding capitalism, which pretty much rules the world these days, came from Scottish thinkers such as Adam Smith. For example, have you heard the phrase, the invisible hand? Usually people say it when they're talking about markets and capitalism. Well, that came from Smith. Though to be fair, our modern economy is quite distant from what he was writing about. Anyway, things changed everywhere, and that was in no small measure thanks to Scottish public education and the Scottish Enlightenment. So well done there, Scotland. And as a bonus, out of that was born a university system that would in turn greatly influence the American university system that so many of us have benefited from. And then, hundreds of years later, Britain apparently had legal trouble with witches? Strange. Anyway, next question. Michael asks if I would consider myself a skeptic. Yes. Yes, I would. Also crotchety and argumentative on occasion. All right. 
What non-Western historical period or event do you find most fascinating? That's an excellent question. I find South American and Native American history fascinating and often horribly underexplored. But if I had to pick one favorite, I think I'd go with 19th century Japan. Think about the incredible shifts in culture that were occurring at around that point in time. You had centuries of history where the shogunate and the samurai class held incredible power. And that was rapidly coming to a close. Meanwhile, you had cultural clashes between Japan and America, and some rather incredibly belligerent actions that came as a result of those clashes. You had national shifts in power, cultural shifts in caste systems, economic shifts, foreign influence, which carry with it their own cultural effects, power struggles between ruling classes of society, technological and economic changes, and meanwhile, you have a population who was probably running as fast as they could just to keep up and adapt. Yeah, 19th century Japan is my final answer. Daniel asks, did stuff ever attend a thing? Yes, and it probably didn't go too well, which is why his brother, Wickgar, ended up in charge of that whole thing. Kim writes, I'm going to London in September, and we'll only have two days to explore. What would you suggest I see with such a limited schedule? Two days in London. Let's see how busy I can keep you. And I'm going to assume here that you're there for the weekend. So when you wake up on Friday morning, head to the British Museum. If you'd like a pint at around lunchtime, you're pretty close to the Princess Louise, which is London's only fully restored Victorian pub. And it's awesome. And if you go, try and get a salon. It's really worth it. Now, depending on how you feel about museums, you can easily lose a week in the British Museum. And I certainly lost quite a few days last time I was in London. But let's assume that you're done with museums. Well, march over to St. Paul's Cathedral and spend some time touring around there. And you should keep in mind that you will get an incredible view of the city, provided that you brave the ridiculous amount of steps that it'll take you to get to the top. And after all those steps, you're probably going to be hungry and thirsty. So head up the Strand to Ye old Cheshire Cheese. This was a favorite haunt of major historic figures, including Dr. Samuel Johnson, Mark Twain, and Charles Dickens. And if you get there early enough, you can even sit at Dr. Johnson's favorite spot. After dinner, head to the Tower of London and attend the Ceremony of the Keys. Now this is an ancient ceremony that's been done for hundreds of years and will really be the centerpiece of your visit. You'll be within the tower after they've closed it down, with a yeoman warder as your guide. It's fantastic. That being said, you need to get tickets in advance, usually months in advance. So I'd suggest you write them immediately and get your tickets locked down. Later in the evening, you might want to consider taking a walking tour. There are quite a few of the more macabre walking tours that start late at night really close to the tower, such as the Jack the Ripper tour, which was a surprisingly good time last time I did it, and will take you through some of the parts of the city that you really would probably not see normally. On Saturday morning, wake up and head to Borough Market. This is the oldest continually run fruit and veg market in London, and honestly, it's just awesome. If you're in the mood for a hearty breakfast, stop by Roast and get one of their sandwiches. My favorite was the stuffed chicken, but pretty much all their food there is good. Afterwards, catch a taxi or take the tube to Westminster, and take your time walking through Westminster Abbey. The audio tour is fun, and you should check it out. I mean... Who doesn't like having Scar from The Lion King tell you about the kings who are buried in Westminster? But it will sort of rush you through the experience, so don't let that happen. Take your time and really look at everything. 
There's a surprisingly large amount of history in that small building, and the audio tour skips over a lot of it. Now, once you're done, you'll be in the neighborhood of Buckingham Palace in Trafalgar Square, so feel free to stroll around and have a look-see. But don't take too long, because you need to get to Suffolk in time for a show at the Globe. Again, get your tickets in advance. Now, if you get there early enough, you can take a tour of the Globe as well as its attached museum, and it's worth every penny. After seeing the show, hopefully in the pit, and hopefully it isn't raining, head over to the George Inn on Borough High Street. This place is steeped in history. The Canterbury Tales started across the street. Dickens hung out there. Shakespeare hung out there. I hung out there. It's really worth going to. And then get pleasantly toasty in this historic location in your last night in London. Is it just me or should I put together a tour at some point? I think it would be fun. Now Joseph asks... Which iconic fictional British hero is your favorite? King Arthur, Robin Hood, Sherlock Holmes, or Doctor Who? If you've been listening to me long enough, I think you can probably guess what my answer will be. Robin Hood. Seriously, how could I pick anyone else? That being said, Kevin Costner still sucks. Okay, I have a question here from Matt. If you attended the London meetup, you'll probably remember Matt as the guy who sang Men of Harlech with me at one point in the night. Good times. Anyway, he would like to know who would win in a fight, some Romans or some Redcoats? Well, my reflexive answer is Redcoats, obviously. I mean, what made the Romans so good was generally their discipline and their training, which the Redcoats also had. So basically what it comes down to is gunpowder, right? And the Redcoats were disciplined enough to fire in ranks, so you just have a steady barrage of gunfire coming at you. I think it would be pretty tough for the Romans to take that on. But I wanted to give this question the full attention it deserves, especially since Matt knows how to sing Men of Harlech. So I asked friend of the show and fellow podcaster Jamie Redfern of the History of Hannibal to weigh in. Romans versus Redcoats. Now that is a very interesting question. I suspect the obvious answer is to go with the Redcoats, which I kind of want to do being British and all. But I am a classicist, and I'm going to have to make a case for the Romans winning. So, who's fighting who? We need to make this at least somewhat fair. So let's say that the British general is Victorian era, probably incompetence, and he can fight Caesar's veterans. The British general is going to observe his technological superiority over the Romans, and therefore he's going to underestimate Caesar. This is a crucial mistake. Caesar's idea will be to try and weaken the British as much as possible, and he is going to see that the key difference between the two forces is firearms, gunpowder. So what Caesar would likely do is be cunning and lie low, he would make a bold night raid on the British camp, seize and destroy the gunpowder, which the British, as they are highly overconfident, would have left undermanned. If Caesar's raid could destroy the gunpowder, then the British would be forced to use melee, their bayonets, hand-to-hand combat, that sort of thing. And could they really beat Roman legionaries in that sort of battle? I think not. So, there you have it. Romans victorious. Well, I'm not sure it would really play out like that, but I have to be honest that Jamie's description is a lot more fun than mine. So there you go. 
Speaking of Jamie Redfern, he asks, which civilization do you have the biggest crush on, the Celts or the Anglo-Saxons? Now, I could be cheeky here and say they're pretty much the same people, but I know we're talking about cultures rather than people. And I think when it comes down to it, I'm more in favor of the Celtic culture over the Anglo-Saxon culture. And not just for the obvious things, like the superior levels of gender equality when compared with their Mediterranean contemporaries, but also for the awesomely creepy stuff, such as the headhunting and ghost walls. The Celtic approach to life and religion just seems like it had a lot more vim and vigor than the Anglo-Saxons. Though, to be fair, the monks did try their best to win the Best Party School of the Middle Ages award, and you do have to respect that. Okay, Jeremy asks, did the Anglo-Saxons have contact with the Byzantine Empire? Yes, sort of. They weren't having dinner with Justinian, but through protracted trade routes, there was some measure of contact between the two peoples. Joe asks, what the hell is your problem with Cornwall? You fully neglected its unique culture and history in your podcast so far. Fair point, though I should mention, I have absolutely no problems with Cornwall. I love the Cornish. In some regards, Cornwall is the Portland of the UK. But like I said, that's a fair comment, and the Celtic West has been largely ignored thus far in this show. But that's something that will be remedied shortly in the future. Jeff wants to know what I think about the Richard III discovery, and whether I'll be doing some interviews on it. Well, first of all, I think it's awesome. And as for interviews, I really hope so, but we are a long way from that period in history right now, so I think it's going to have to wait for now. Linda asks why the Romans and Anglo-Saxon campaigns were so comparatively easy to complete. She says they seem to fight one or two big battles and then voila, the entire country or tribe that they're fighting is defeated and the Romans, Britons, or Anglo-Saxons now own a huge new chunk of territory. Linda went on to compare those wars to the Iraq War, which lasted much longer than most people expected, despite a large military advantage, and never fully managed to put a stop to the insurgency much less exert ownership over Iraq. Well, the truth is that actually very little changes. It's just that things don't seem as bad when they're in the past, and they also seem shorter. Rome was dealing with decades of insurgencies and outright rebellions in Britain. For example, Boudicca struck after Rome had held Britain for 17 years. And don't forget that you also had Caractacus leading a guerrilla campaign, the Brigante occasionally in rebellion, and all manner of troubles in Wales at around the same time. And then, of course, he also had the repeated attempts by Rome to take Scotland, all of which failed. And those were just the major events. The minor skirmishes or ambushes probably never even made it into the panegyrics or other records. Hell, even big events like the vanished Ninth Legion weren't recorded, so the small targeted attacks of an insurgency probably weren't high on the priority list for the histories. But we can infer that it was pretty bad. I mean, don't forget that things were occasionally so awful in Britain that emperors needed to go and visit. Or at the very least, they needed to send additional legions. I mean, for large portions of the Romano-British period, there were four legions in Britannia alone. That's a hell of a lot of manpower for a small island. Britain really wasn't easy for Rome to hold. And as for the Anglo-Saxons, don't forget that we have evidence of Germanic settlers legging it from Britain and returning to the continent. And this was over a very long period of time. And in the very few records that we have, we're hearing of conflicts with the local Brits, and Welsh sources are talking about kings such as Urien of Regid that gave the Anglo-Saxons quite the run for their money. And all of this was taking place over the course of more than 100 years. So it really wasn't a quick snatch and grab. It was pretty awful in many respects. It was just so long ago that it seems short and simple. 
Matthew asks, is there any particular software that you use for your research and notes to keep everything organized? Or do you stick to the tried and true pen and notebook method? Well, I'm a pretty big fan of my Kindle when I can use it, since you can highlight stuff and access the information from your computer later. But a lot of sources that I use aren't available on the Kindle, so in that case, I tend to go one of two ways. If it's a scholarly article that's on PDF, I use Foxit because that allows for highlighting, and it's awesome. If it's a book, I just highlight as normal and then write out my notes on Google Docs. Since I prefer to not have to worry about hitting save all the time in fear of the inevitable computer problem or power outage in this rickety old house that I live in. So I hope that helps, but if it wasn't helpful, check out Evernote. I know quite a few people who use it, and they absolutely love it. Now Stephen asks, why do you think some of the incredible violence in the Viking Norse culture, particularly when it came in contact with other cultures, is so romanticized and fetishized? Well, that's something more of a sociology question than a history question, but I'll try my best to answer it. Just keep in mind that I really am wandering outside my area here. So the first thing that jumps to my mind is that our view of history is still colored by the Victorians. The Victorians were steeped in foreign wars and did a fair amount of rationalization for their own behavior, and part of this involved elevating cultures that they regarded as similar to themselves, or worthy of admiring. So enter the Norse with their foreign invasions and maritime culture, which probably seemed really familiar. And to be perfectly honest, the Norse were pretty alluring if you wanted to compare yourself to a group of warriors, since they were just so dominant in the last bits of the first millennium CE. So they were an obvious target for an imperial culture in search of a crush. Similarly, the Romans were a dominant force in the BCE period as well as the early CE period, and so it shouldn't surprise you that the Victorians also loved the Romans. Oh god, did they ever love the Romans. I mean, hell, you can still see a lot of this Victorian hangover in many history texts as well as just popular opinions people hold about history. There's often a reflexive identification with the Romans and the Vikings, as if that was the side that we'd be on during those periods. But the truth of it is that the bulk of the ancestors of your average Briton are not going to be Roman or Norse. Rather, we're mostly descended from the victims of the Romans and Norse. But that isn't sexy. So instead, we act like we're on the side of the conquerors rather than the conquered. It's probably the same reason why we have these weird myths about the English being the result of an Anglo-Saxon invasion, with genocide and mass ejection of the local population. That allows the English to look at their history and say, we're descended from historical badasses, rather than saying, ugh, we were colonized, repeatedly, by damn near everyone. And in general, we just kind of had to take it. I mean, where's the fun in that? And actually... That plays right into another weird hangover and bias that we have that's even older than the Victorians. It's this weird cult of masculinity and the cult of the warrior. Traits that we identify as masculine are often elevated, and few are elevated as much as warrior traits. We see shadows of this in archaeology, actually, where we find people buried with incredibly shabby weapons that lack any sorts of marks that indicate that they were used in battle. Furthermore, the bodies we find often are lacking battle wounds. Yet until recently, the approach was to say, this is a warrior, just look at the weapon. Rather than asking the question of whether or not this was just an odd cultural thing where men were buried with that sort of equipment for social or religious reasons. On the flip side, when a female skeleton is found with weaponry, the tendency is to explain away the presence of the weapon, or even the wounds, as something outside of battle. 
It's intellectually inconsistent behavior, but you see it a lot. Anyway, that all ties into how we perceive the violence of the Romans and Vikings. I mean, they're uber-violent, right? They're what we see as the ideal warrior male in many regards. And now that we're so distant from them, we've idealized them in many ways, as evidenced by movies and TV shows like Gladiator and Vikings. We see them as basically us, but with more fighting, a little dirtier, and with cool clothes. It's a very simplistic viewpoint, and it avoids that massive gulfing culture that exists between our society and how they were organized. But that simplistic view allows us to place ourselves in their shoes and imagine that we were the conquering warriors back then, and even go so far as to say that our modern culture, while it's violent and warlike, is largely okay because that's just how things are. And, of course, assume that war is just kind of action-packed and exciting. So that's my guess. But I'm not a sociologist, so take it with a grain of salt. Just wanted to know what other podcasts I recommend. To be perfectly honest, I don't listen to history podcasts. Now, there's a couple reasons for that. The first is time constraints, but the second is that I don't want to accidentally absorb someone else's style. So when I do listen to podcasts, it's often on a completely different subject, and usually only short weekly shows rather than something that's regularly released. So for example, right now, when I have time, I listen to The Bugle, which is a topical comedy show that features John Oliver, and is pretty fantastic. And the other show that I listen to is a local Portland show called Welcome to That Whole Thing. And it features two podcasters who have really been at the hub of Portland geek culture for about the last decade. Other than that, I just tend to listen to music. For example, when I'm writing, I like to listen to the All Day album by Girl Talk, which, while it's not safe for work, it is phenomenal. And it's available for free online. Just Google Girl Talk and look for the album titled All Day and prepare for awesomeness, such as Wu-Tang Clan mixed with Radiohead. It's so cool. Anyway, moving on. So I had a few questions from people who wanted to start their own podcasts. So here's some general advice. First, make sure you do your homework and know your subject. And doing your homework means that you're finding reputable sources, checking those sources and their citations, and not just relying on a single source, since that single source can lead you astray. For comparison, on average I have about a dozen books on my desk and a ridiculous number of articles when I'm doing research. And the whole idea behind that is to get a well-rounded and clear view of the events and avoid misstatements or biases. Second, practice. Practice, practice, practice. And when you think you're done practicing, practice a little more. Recording is weird and unnatural. And you'll be surprised how fast you go from an articulate and normal-sounding person to a babbling buffoon the second you press record. And the only way to get past that is to practice. Third, you really need to be passionate about your project because you're going to get people tearing you down at every stage of it. It sucks, but podcasting just isn't respected yet. It's still a new medium. And the sad fact of it is, people aren't very good at hiding their lack of respect. So you'll only persevere if you really believe in what you do. For me, I think education and knowledge is a human right. So this isn't a hobby for me, but rather it's a years-long project where I'm creating an accessible collection of knowledge that's hopefully appropriately deep on a very influential area of history. So for me, that's important enough to shrug off the baffled looks and assumptions that I'm a basement dweller when I explain what I do. Though it still sucks when it happens. So if this is something you really want to do, 
and I think more people should do it, know that you're going to run into many of the same social and family troubles that comedians, musicians, and other creative types run into. But so it doesn't sound like I'm super down on what I do, I love my job. I really do. And even on my worst day, hearing from listeners brightens it up immediately. And some of the best emails I get are from kids who are working on starting their own history projects and even their own history podcasts, one of which I saw only the other day. And I got to tell you, it was super cute. So honestly, I can't complain. But what I'm getting at is that this isn't glamorous or easy. And I'll never be rich. And if you're starting a show, you should probably know that. Okay. So I got quite a few personal questions, and I figure I'll just handle them rapid fire. Here we go. Tell us something personal about yourself. Again, that's a super broad question. Um, I'm tattooed. And actually, I rarely tell people what my tattoo is, even when asked. But I feel like we got something special going on here. So what my tattoo is, is my favorite passage from the Tao Te Ching. And it's duplicated from the oldest known copy of Lao Tzu's masterpiece. So here's my favorite English translation, but there are many out there, and I encourage you to check them out. In retrospect, even those accomplishments that seem perfect when accomplished may seem imperfect and ill-formed, but this does not mean that such accomplishments have outlived their usefulness. That which once seemed full may later empty seem, yet still be unexhausted. That which once seemed straight may seem twisted when seen once more. Intelligence can seem stupid, and eloquence seem awkward. Movement may overcome the cold, and stillness, heat. But stillness and movement is the way of the Tao. So there you go. Okay, how did you get to the U.S.? By plane via LAX. There wasn't a romantic Ellis Island moment, I'm afraid. Just a fairly boring airport and a smoggy day. What is your British background? Well, I was born there. Most of my family is still there, in fact, except for the few members who immigrated to the U.S. around the same time that my parents and I did. I have a few traits that give me away, such as pale blue skin and dark hair, but in general, I've hid my Britishness fairly well through orthodontics and learning an American accent, which was harder than you'd think. Those two changes, of course, have led people to question whether I'm truly a Brit. But I am. And if you ever doubt it, just hug me. I'll go from composed to pure, unadulterated awkward in a millisecond. The American hugging culture is something I've never managed to adapt to. I know you have a law degree, but what other educational areas have you studied? Well, I focused on literature and creative writing in undergrad. And what I really loved was poetry. But making money as a poet is even harder than making money as a podcaster, which I'm sure doesn't surprise you at all. And other than that... I had a pretty normal liberal arts education. How have you become so knowledgeable about British history? By reading. A lot. All the time. Even my fun books are British history. My office is a mess filled with stacks of books and random printouts. My iPad is filled with PDFs of scholarly articles. I'm always studying. What are those side projects that you're working on? Well, I'm looking at putting together a coffee table book. I've also been working on a board game that's focused upon the Wars of the Roses, though that project has been neglected as the show has picked up steam. I'm also looking into doing a few extra things, probably for the members, like a review of pop history such as TV shows and films, because I think that would be fun. And Chris, 
That's why I didn't answer your question about history films, in case you're wondering, because chances are it's going to come out in a later episode. How much time do you spend preparing a podcast? (laughs) You know, that's literally impossible for me to answer. I have no idea. The reason is, is that I'm always studying or planning something or talking to someone about the show or musing over how to make a dry subject interesting to you guys. It's a creative process, so it's kind of always going on. I kind of drive myself crazy with it sometimes, actually. I'm just always thinking about it. In fact, there are times when I bolt out of the shower, wrap a towel around myself, and hammer out part of a script because I just figured out how to word something. And good luck getting that image out of your head. All right. What other interests do you have? So my instinct is to make a joke about how I don't have the time for other interests, but the truth is that I have quite a few. I'm very interested in politics and current affairs. I'm also quite interested in media. As far as areas of study outside of history, I find anthropology and sociology really interesting. And when it comes to non-serious things, I actually really like board games, and I have quite the collection. And I've also been known to play a couple computer games. Those of you who are in the Facebook community are probably already aware of my undying love of Crusader Kings 2 and how much I really wish I had more time to play it because it's just the greatest game ever made. So there you go. Those are some of my interests. I also sometimes build trebuchets and have even been known to brew beer. So, you know, stuff like that. Oh, and I like to cook. All right. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook. We're at facebook.com slash britishhistory. And we're on Twitter. Just look for at britishpodcast. And, of course, there's the forums, which I'm sure you already know about. But if you didn't, just go to thebritishhistorypodcast.com, click get involved and click forums and we'll see you over there. All right. Thanks for listening.